I want to talk this morning about the dangers of talking to yourself. There's a lot of benefits to talking to ourselves, is there not? I like talking to myself because I always agree with me. I like talking to myself because it helps me think through issues. Sometimes I probably shouldn't be talking to myself because I forget myself and I start talking out loud to myself. I found out not long after getting married, there's two kinds of conversations that my wife has. One with herself and one with me. And I have to pay very close attention. Because sometimes she'll be talking and I'll say, was that for me? No, I'm talking to myself. Of course that's what's happening here. And then five minutes later, are you going to answer me? And I'm, I thought she was talking to herself. So you've got to figure all of that out. But there are dangers in talking to yourself. And what we're going to find as we get into Job chapter 3 is a part of the danger that we have to be aware of. And you think, well, I don't talk to myself. All of us talk to ourselves. Maybe you don't do it out loud, but you reason, you think, you go through experiences, you let your mind dwell on those things, you meditate on things. That's all talking to ourselves. And there's some things from the scripture we need to be aware of as we think about that. Martin Luther used to tell a parable in which the devil was listening to his demons. He brought them together and said, what are you doing in order to destroy the souls of men? And one of his demons looked at him and said, well, he's very proud of himself. There was a company of Christians, and they were crossing the desert. And I brought through a whole horde of lions, and there were bodies strewn all throughout the desert. And Satan looked at him and said, but what good is that? The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. It's their souls that I'm after. Another demon looked at him and said, well, there was a group of pilgrims, and they were sailing across the sea. And I brought a great wind across And the shipwreck, and they all drowned. And again, Satan looked at him and said, but what good is that? Their bodies are gone, but their souls were saved. It's their souls that I'm after. Another demon looked at Satan and he said, well, for 10 years, I've been trying to cast one particular Christian into deep despair and depression. At last, I have succeeded. And suddenly there was applause throughout all the halls of hell as the demons were excited about that fact. And Satan looked at him and said, that's exactly what I'm looking at. That's exactly what I'm looking for. The souls of defeated Christians. And we get to chapter 3 in Job and we need to realize there are dangers as we go through the circumstances of life. When we begin talking to ourselves about why. Why did this happen? And we're going to talk about that question as we get into that. But there's dangers there because that's what Job was facing. After going through chapter 1 and finishing that chapter with a wonderful proclamation of his faith. Naked I came into the world and naked I will return. I brought nothing in. I'll take nothing out. Blessed be the name of the Lord when God took away everything from him. And then you get to the end of chapter 2. And his wife comes after he's also been afflicted head to toe with sickness and sores. And she said, just curse God and die. And Job looks and he says, shall we not receive evil things from the Lord as well as good? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you get to the end of chapter 2, and if it would just jump over to the end of the book and say, God restored Job, all would be well. But then suddenly we come to chapter 3 and we see that Job is devastated physically, emotionally. The crushing reality, I think, of some of what he just experienced began to set in. Have you ever experienced the death of a loved one, especially an unexpected death of a loved one? It's almost surreal at first. It doesn't feel like it actually happened. 
Can you imagine Job? His wealth was wiped out in an afternoon. And then he gets word that all ten of his children have died. And yes, I'm sure that was a shock to Job's system, but I'm sure it also took Job some time to process that. What does this really mean? What's happened? And the mourning set in. And that's why we find him mourning outside the city on this ash heap. Overall, that he's lost. Genuine believers all have a point at which we can become discouraged. And if we're not careful, depressed. Good people in Scripture. You see Elijah after his experience on Mount Carmel with all of those prophets of Baal and he gets a wonderful victory and the prophets of Baal are slain and then he runs from Jezebel and he's off in the wilderness hiding and you know what's going on there? He's discouraged. He's depressed to the point that he's waiting for God to take his life because the circumstances of life just overwhelmed him and as Job is sitting here The circumstances of life are beginning to overwhelm him. Have you ever been there? You're tired of just the constant pain and the suffering that you may be going through? You're down because of the heaviness of your trials? You ever have a trial that just feels like it's weighing your shoulders down? That's where Job is at this moment. You're hurt so badly that you just wish you could go to heaven. And you're ready to go now. That's Job when we get to Job chapter 3. And this is a man who's held his integrity, who's not cursed the name of God, and yet now all of the circumstances as he sits here for seven days, as he mulls this over in his mind, as he talks to himself, and the interesting thing about that is the Lord God chooses not to reveal what he was thinking. His friends never know, other than his conversation, exactly what he was thinking and when. We don't know. God gave us a glimpse into heaven. Why not give us a glimpse into the thoughts of Job as he's going through this? But we know that Job struggled from the conversations he's about to have and from chapter 3. Chapter 3, and I hate to say this this early into the sermon, but chapter 3 of Job is probably one of the most depressing chapters in all the Bible. I have never had anybody say, this is my favorite passage, Pastor, can you read it with me when I go visiting? I don't know of anybody when I said, where's your favorite verse? They said, turn to Job chapter 3. Let me share this verse with you. Or anybody who says, when I'm down and I'm depressed and I'm looking for answers, I turn to Job chapter 3. So the question becomes, why is this chapter in the Bible? What's its purpose? Why have a chapter where we're going to get a look into the very depths of Job's soul as he deals with these issues, but a chapter that it kind of ends with no answers. Now, we're going to get the answers. Now, those of you who are reading through the book and you're getting bogged down in chapter 15 and 16 and chapter 20, keep going because the answers aren't there until chapter 40 and 41 and 42, but you may not get the answers you're looking for. But the answers are coming. But as we go through chapter 3, we've got to ask ourselves, what's its purpose? I thought about that, and I thought about that because I think this is a chapter that serves as a warning sign for us. You ever been driving someplace, and you know, I think of this a lot of times when we drive, especially if we drive up to see family up in Buffalo, and it's about a ten and a half drive if everything goes well. And when I get in the car getting ready to go, I get my GPS, and I'm looking, and there's my estimated time of arrival. And my kids will tell you that I find very little joy in the journey. 
My greatest joy is if I arrive five minutes before my estimated time of arrival on the GPS. But you're driving along and everything's going well and maybe you've gone for an hour or two and suddenly you see that dreaded warning sign on the side of the road. You know, the one that about 75% of the motorists ignore, merge right, construction ahead. And if you get in, in the right lane, what happens in the left lane? Dozens of people who need their IQ checked keep zipping right by and then trying to cut in, and you back up further, and you back up further. But if you're not paying attention, and you've got cruise control on at 65 miles an hour, and you're flying down the road in the left lane, and you don't merge right, there's a disaster coming up. So it's there for a purpose, and I may not like the sign, and I may not like what it's going to do to my time and what it's going to do to my estimated time of arrival, but it's there for a warning because circumstances are about to change just up the road. Job chapter 3 is like one of those warning signs. Because even when you're placing your faith in God and God alone, when you are going through difficult circumstances and you're answering the, right, the, the, the questions the right way, you're still going to have to deal with the weight, with the difficulty, with the finality of some of the circumstances in life. And how are we going to deal with that? Job chapter 3 is here to begin pointing us in the right direction. What will your reaction be to circumstances when your faith is truly tested? Is your faith likely to be tested? Some may say, it's been this year, it's been the past year. I know some of you have gone through difficult situations. And what will happen to your faith when that happens? When it's your loved one who passes away. When it's your finances that take a big hit. When my, my, my oldest son is learning this, when you have a young family and suddenly you thought you had everything planned out and now your car goes on the fritz two weeks before your third child is supposed to be born. The third child that they said they weren't going to have. Anyway, the third child is coming along. And then... A week beforehand, suddenly the van, the van you didn't want to buy in the first place, but you realize when you've got that many babies, you can't put them in a regular car, you need a van, and the van goes out. And you don't know what it is, and the mechanic can't figure it out. And you're putting all this money into it, and you're saying, what am I going to do next? Your faith is tested. And what is the first question we instinctively ask? Why? And if we're honest... And what probably happened in the heart of Job as he sat there for seven days in silence, not only why, but why, why me? Are there people more wicked than you in the world? And Job's theology and Job's friends' theologies are about to be tested because somehow we think in the back of our mind that it shouldn't happen to me, it should happen to somebody more wicked than I am because that would be just and that would be fair. And God, why would you do this to me? And sometimes if we're not careful, we even look around at church and we say, Lord, why me? You know, they're not as faithful as I am, or they're not giving like I am, or they're not serving like I am. Why would you do this to me? And it's a dangerous question to ask, and Job is going to ask it at least 20 times through the course of this book. Why? 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 And as we get to the end of the book, we're going to find part of Job's problem is he's asking the wrong question. So we begin chapter 3 by breaking the silence. Job Job chapter 3 verse 1 says this, After this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, See, that's a weird place to stop, but that's where we're going to stop, because that's how the silence was broken. Breaking the silence. It says, After this Job opened his mouth. After what? 
After seven days of mourning and silence. But it's not just that. It's after losing his wealth. It's after losing his children. It's after losing his health. It's after possibly in his mind thinking, well, at least I have my wife. And she comes and she says, Job, just curse God and die. So it's after that. It's after his three friends come by. Have you really thought about that reunion with Job and his three friends? We read about it last week very briefly, but Job's three friends come, and they see Job from a distance, and what does the Bible say? Job was so bad off, they couldn't even recognize him. He didn't look like Job. What do you think their faces looked like when they got to Job? They came to comfort. They came to give sympathy. But what do you think their their jaws probably dropped? You could see the sorrow and the concern in their face. They're supposed to be picking Job's spirits up, and they're just as mournful as he is. And they don't know what to say. And so for seven days, watching Job struggle internally with what's going on, watching Job mourn over the family that he's lost, probably watching Job mourn over the wife who may have his best interest at heart but wasn't being as supportive as she probably could have been, Watching him mourn over all of these things, here is Job, and then Job breaks the silence, and he opens his mouth, and what's the first thing he does? That he curses the day he was born. Now, this is important. Does he curse God? Job doesn't curse God, but he curses the day he was born, and as he does this, that's the first reaction. It's the first picture we get into what's been happening in the mind of Job for the last seven days. Job's been mulling over these things. Job is so despondent at the end of these seven days, Job just wants to die and we're going to see this. And he goes to the fact that he's even going to curse the day that he was born because things hadn't been going well for him. He's going to curse the day he was born. Later, he's going to curse the fact that he wasn't stillborn. And then he's going to curse the fact that God hasn't taken him. The interesting thing in all this, even in his despair and his depression, Job never really gets suicidal. He wants God to take care of it for him. What does that tell you about Job? Even in the midst of this, Job realizes that God is in control. Job just has a better plan for him than he thinks God God has at the moment. Everything's gone. Job wants to be gone. He's going to explain why. His friends who had no idea what he's been thinking are there, and they're going to be less than helpful over many, many chapters. And Job looks, and why would Job get to the point where he curses the day of his birth? Again, we can't be sure where Job was, but if we look at chapter 1 and his reaction... And we look at chapter 2 and his reaction. Often we jump to the conclusion that Job in chapter 3 has just said, you know, if I can't have all my stuff and I can't have all my family, then life's not worth living. But I think it's deeper than that. Did Job have a special relationship with God? So much so that when Satan comes along, God brings him up and says, have you considered my servant Job? And I think part of Job's despondency is the fact that if I have to live outside of the blessing of God on my life, which he looked at everything he had beforehand and said, that was God who did that. And if I can't have that, then life's not worth living. And to some extent, that's commendable. How many of us would look and say, I could live without everything but the blessing of God on my life? It's easy to say until we start considering what that would mean. In Job's case, it meant his wealth. 
It meant his prestige and his honor. It meant his whole family. It meant even his friends and the communion of his friends. It was going to be a really rough stretch that Job's going through. And as Job sees all of this, he desperately, desperately, desperately wants the blessing of God in his life. So he starts with his first of three questions. Number one, why was I even born? In fact, what he's saying with that question is, I wish I had never been born. If I was going to end up here, why that? Look at what the scripture tells us. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let the day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide from my eyes. Why was I born? If this is where I'm going to end up, why was I born? Now, chapter 3 has begun Hebrew poetry. And I'll confess right now, we're not going to go verse by verse and thought by thought and word by word with Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is very fascinating, and we're going to interpret it as poetry as we go through. But Job is going to use some flowery language to say some very simple things. What we need to take away from it is, what's Job trying to say here? What's he trying to do here? And the point of this first stanza is the fact that Job wished he'd never been born. Now, as he does this, Job realizes this wish is inconsequential and it's not going to amount to anything. You know, how many of you could change yesterday? Yesterday, I wanted to change 15 seconds of yesterday. And I know better, okay? I know better than this. I've been using paper cutters for 40 years. And yesterday, I'm in a hurry, and I get, I get the uh, announcement sheets out, and I stick them on the paper cutter. And bre- bre- <laughs> Greg's looking at my finger and says, is he about to say what I think he's going to say? Yeah, that's where I'm going. Uh, and, and I got everything lined up, and the paper wasn't quite straight. So if it's not straight, you just slide it where it belongs. And so I slid it where it belongs, and I slapped it down. And I looked over there, and there's this little tiny chunk of flesh sitting over there with the papers. And I'm like, what is that, and where'd that come from? And you know how you don't normally, you don't always realize what you just did for a second? And then I suddenly realized what I just did. That tiny chunk of flesh used to be on the end of that thumb. And it's over there. And all day long, it's smart, and it's hurting. I'm trying to stop it. It didn't just cut it. It took the chunk off, so it kept on bleeding. And I'm thinking, oh, for 15 seconds to have it back. To say, okay, pull your finger back and don't do that. Job's looking even more seriously saying, if I could just have that day back. God, just don't have me born. And then none of this is a problem. And he says it in very flowery ways. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Now there's some interesting principles here, and we're not going to dwell here a long time. But Job first looks back and says, oh, if the day I was born just never happened, then I'm not in all this. But Job goes a step further than this. And it's going to teach us something about when Job believes that life begins. Job said, not only the day when I was born, I wish that would perish, but the night when it was said, a man is conceived. Job said, you want to know when Job believed life began? At conception. 
Say, God, if I hadn't been conceived, then I wouldn't be born and I wouldn't be going through this. Does that have any application for us when we look at the whole abortion agenda? And part of it, for years, the discussion has been, when does life really begin? I can tell you, when Job thinks life begins, he looks back and says, I don't want this life, so if only that night of conception hadn't taken place. And so here we have Job looking at this and saying, you know, Lord, I wish it had never happened. And the language here is kind of very fierce when he looks at this and says, I'm really serious about this. Look at verses 4 through 6. He wishes that reality had been different. He says there in verses 4 through 6, that that day may be darkened and may God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. He's really trying to say in very flowery language, if only I could go back and erase that day from the calendar. Erase me from the calendar, then none of this would happen. That's the depths of despair that he's in. You read verse 8, and verse 8 is an interesting verse, and I promise myself we're not getting lost here. But look at verse 8. It says there, let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. A couple of interesting things in that. Job's actually looking, and again, we're talking about the time of the patriarchs probably. He's looking and saying, those who conjure, those who curse things, if only they would have cursed that day so nobody had been born. If they had only roused up Leviathan, and we may talk about Leviathan, but not till chapter 41. So if you really want to know more about Leviathan, you're going to have to hang on through this whole study. But the idea here is, here is a creature, a sea creature, who cannot be controlled and causes chaos and wreaks havoc. And if only that had been the case and there had been too much havoc wreaked for me to be born. He's just looking at all of these things and saying, God, I wish I'd never been born. To the point in verse 10, he says, Take this day away because it did not shut the door of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. And you get a little glimpse into Job there because he's saying, I don't want to have been born because I don't want to have gone through all of this and seen God's hand of blessing removed from me and my family. And again, it goes to that idea that we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's the patriarch. He's supposed to protect his family. He's supposed to provide for his family. And for seven days, Job has sat on that heap realizing, I have almost no family other than my wife left. And I can't provide for her. And God's hand of blessing has been removed from my life. And I can't figure out why because I can't think of a thing that I've done. And the truth of the matter is it wasn't because of anything he'd done. But he hadn't heard that conversation with God. And so here is Job trying to figure all this out to the point where he says, you know what, number one, I wish I'd never been born. And if that's not enough, his next question in chapter 3, verse 11 through 19, why did I survive? Why did I live? Why was I not stillborn? And you look again at some of the things he says here. Why did I not die at birth and come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Now don't miss that in verse 13. Job is lamenting the fact that God's blessing has been taken away from my life, and I am in turmoil, and I cannot find rest. And Job just wants rest. And when we're going through trials, don't you want rest? When you're suffering, don't you want it to be over? And there's nothing wrong with praying, God, you know, take this from me, but we need to tack on it like Jesus Christ did at Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Because you know what's best for me. 
And so Job is looking at all this and saying, only if I could be at rest, verse 14, at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their house with silver. Or why was I not hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. And you get in these verses a little bit of not only Job's longing for rest, but his picture of death. Now, he's not really looking at heaven or hell in these verses, okay? Because he said, oh, that I were with the wicked who are at rest. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, as Job looks at that, and as we look at that verse about the wicked in verse 17, it says, there the wicked cease from troubling. And the idea is not necessarily that they cease from troubling others, but that they trouble others because they're troubled. And they cease from having this troubled spirit that causes them to be so wicked. And Job says, you know, if only I could cease from having the problems in life. I could cease being weary. And that phrase for being weary there, he says in verse 17, there the weary have rest. It's unique in all of scripture. It's two words put together. And it basically means those weary and without strength should have rest. And it's the only place we find those two Hebrew words together in all of scripture. Because Job is looking and saying, I am as low as low is ever going to get. I just want rest. I just want peace. I just want it all to be over and be an end. Not only that, but he says, I want it to be that way as it is for prisoners and slaves who die. Because once they die, they're out from under all of this. And Job's trying to figure all of this out. He says, I just want my spirit to be free. I want to be at rest. And Some of the things that Job is longing for aren't necessarily wrong. But they're not God's will for him in the midst of what he's going through now. And Job's going to have to come to grasp with that. Job knows, and that's the thing we have to remember. You remember chapter 2, verse 10? Shall we receive good from the hands of God and not evil? Job knows in his head, but what's the problem when he's going through it? It's taking from what's here and placing it in the heart. And God's going to do that for Job. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of misgiving from his friends. But God's going to set everything straight one time. But at this point, here is Job sitting with his three friends. And can you imagine sitting with Job for seven days? You've traveled from afar, and your purpose was to comfort and give sympathy. How are you doing so far? This man who looked terrible when you got here, and now in his spirit, he's worse. He's asking, why am I alive? Why did I not die? Why did I not die at birth? And all of this going on, the problem in all that he is doing here goes to his next question. Why can't I just die? And the idea is, why can't I just die now? Why can Job be so content in that? Well, number one, he's got this theory of death that death puts me at rest. Number two, he's got a relationship with God like no one else on earth. Again, remember what God said about it? Can you imagine God saying that about you or me? Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless. He has integrity. He fears me. And you look at your life and say, am I, am I where I need to be with God? God looked at Job and said, this guy is. And so as Job is struggling with all this, he said, well, you know, why can't I die? Because what I've got waiting for me is much better than what I have today. Why can't Job die? God's got a plan for it. Job didn't hear the conversation again. Job, Job is sick. Job probably figures he's on death's door. Because think about Job's life. 
Before chapter 1 takes place, Job has it all. By the end of chapter 1, in just a very short period of time, he's lost every material and family thing he's ever had. In chapter 2, he loses his health, and not only does he get sick, he's got sores from his head to his toes. There's nothing that doesn't hurt on this poor man. And what is Job thinking at this point? We find out as we look through this chapter, it's like he says, if I think it's going to happen bad, it's coming. And what's he think is coming next? Death is the only thing left for me. Is that true? Again, we have to be careful when we're going through suffering, when we're going through trials, because sometimes we come to wrong conclusions. Have you read the end of the book? If you're stuck in the middle, read the last chapter and then go back and pick it up again, because it's not over for Job. God has things for him to do, but Job feels like it is. And Job's trying to trust in the midst of this, but he's asking this major question. Why? In the midst of all this, why? And we need to understand, as we look at this question of why I can't just die, let's read it and then talk about this why. He says, why is light given to me who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? whom God has hedged in. And don't miss that in verse 23. Why is Job in despair? It's not just because his stuff is gone. It's not even because he lost his kids, although all that's part of it. Job says, God's hedged me in. I've lost God's blessing on my life, and I'm under his condemnation, and I don't know why. Verse 24, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. That's where I was just talking about the fact that Job looks and says, what next? Have you ever thought that? Don't think like that. As Job's seeing things happen that day when all was taken away from him, there's got to be a point at which he looked and said, what next? And guess what? He found out what was next. And now he's looking and saying, everything I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest and he longs for it. But trouble comes. And without knowing it, Job's being very prophetic in verse 26. Job said, I'm not at ease. I'm not quiet. I just want to die and be at peace and be at rest. And then it says at the end of that, but trouble comes. What trouble's coming for Job that hasn't already arrived? Hasn't he lost it all? How many of you are trying to read through chapters 4 through 37? Job's about to get more trouble from the very people who are supposed to be helping him. Because once they hear Job say all these things, what is in the mind of all of his friends? Job, what did you do? What did you do? If you had God's blessing, what did you do to take it away? Because they have a theology similar to Job's thinking, God always blesses the righteous and he always condemns the wicked. And Job's looking at the experience of his life, and what is that doing to his theology? It's like something's wrong, and something is wrong. Because ultimately, God does bless the righteous. Ultimately, were you with us for the study in Revelation? Ultimately, God is going to take care of the wicked, and they are going to be condemned. But when we look in this life, does it always work that way? Do you know wicked people that seem to be rich and happy and having everything go their way? You know righteous people that are struggling at times? God's got it all under control. And though Job used to believe that, by the time he gets to the end of chapter 3, 
he's struggling with these things. He's wondering what God's doing. And the reason is the proper question for Job at this time is not why. Though it's our instinctive question. It's our instinctive question because most of us really live in a me-oriented universe. And Job's looking and saying, why did this happen to, to me? I'm better than this. I deserve better than this. I didn't do anything wrong. And his buddies are all looking at him and saying, oh, yes, you did. You must have been despicable. Just fess up. And Job is looking at these things and should be asking what question? The first question he should be asking The question he started thinking about in chapters 1 and chapters 2, but has abandoned now, is not the question of why, but the question of who. Who's in control? He believed it in chapter 1. He believed it in chapter 2. He's questioning it in chapter 3. Because he looks and said, if God is really in control, and if he really appreciated the way that I walked before him, he'd take me now. Are God's ways always our ways? Are God's thoughts our thoughts? But after seven days of talking to himself, does it not make sense to Job? Think about it. If you were Job, would it not make sense to you? God, I've lost everything. I've lost my family. I've lost my riches. I've lost my respect. I wish I'd lost my friends. Now what? God, just take me. And God says what? No. Because God has a bigger plan. Job is going to glorify God by the way he goes through this. And even by the way he learns some things about himself. And in the midst of this, he should be asking, who? Who's in charge? And then if he gets to this question of who's in charge, the next question ought to be not why, but how. If God's in charge, how am I supposed to respond to these circumstances? Do you think it was God's will for Job to sit on the ash heap? For seven days and then explode in cursing the day of his birth. Now, Job didn't sin against God by cursing God, but Job's beginning to question what's God up to. Maybe it's not such a good thing if you receive evil and good from the hand of God, because look where I am. And if God was going to really give me good, he'd take me home now. And it's not help happening for him now. And he really needs to look and say, How? How do I do this? How do I do what God has asked me to do? And there's a couple of things as I was reading through the commentary from Leighton Talbert that we need to think about. Number one, even in the midst of all this, even arriving to the end of himself because he believed and tried to hold to his faith in God, Job's not suicidal. Is Job trying to take his own life? He's scraping those sores. He's miserable. He wants to die. But who's he looking to? He still realizes in the back of his mind, God's in control. Now he wants to tell God how to take care of things, but Job's not going to step in and do it himself because there's still this respect for who God is and what God's doing. And even in the midst of his depression, he's not going to go there. And we also need to understand as we get into the rest of these chapters, the very personal nature of suffering. Have you ever really been suffering, either physically, emotionally? When you are personally suffering... Who do you think understands? Really understands? Most people look at me and say, nobody understands what I'm going through. And Job is looking and feeling the same thing. It's a very personal thing he's going through. He's got almost nobody left. His three friends are about to go after him for 30 chapters. And so here's Job, and he's very personally going through these things. It's a very lonely road to hoe. 
because he's not only looking and saying, there's nobody here for me to turn to, but who would he normally turn to? God, and what does he feel like? God has forsaken me. And again, we need to remember, as Job is going to be reminded at the end of this book, that God hasn't forsaken us, regardless of what we're going through. God is still in control. And though we may feel like God has forsaken us, we need to remember the truth of what really is going on. God's in control and he's working in our lives. And good people struggle with that. And we're going to close with this idea, because think of some of the folks in Scripture that have struggled with that. Did Elijah, when he fled, believe that God was still in control? Can you imagine? Elijah went from the high of looking at 700 prophets and calling down fire from heaven that they couldn't and having them slain to running and wanting to die because he lost focus on the fact that God is in control. God has a reason for what's happening in my life. And think about Peter. Did Peter ever struggle? Was Peter ever depressed? Can you imagine being Peter on the night of the crucifixion? Peter, who swore he would die for Jesus Christ, and Christ told him, you're going to deny me three times. Do you think Peter believed it? He told him he didn't believe it. And he denied him once. He denied him in front of a servant girl. He denied him a third time. And the Gospels tell us that as he denied him the third time, Christ appeared coming down the stairs and caught Peter eye to eye. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter was a strong personality. Peter was almost obnoxious at times with his opinions. But when he locked eyes with Jesus Christ and realized what had just happened, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Was Peter discouraged? You bet Peter was discouraged. Was Peter depressed? Probably. Because I think that's part of why we have that whole thing around the lake. When Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, calls Peter to himself and says, Peter, do you love me? Can you imagine being Peter at that moment? Peter left everything to follow Jesus Christ. Yet he denied him just as Jesus said he would. And now Jesus Christ, the same one who looked him eye to eye after the denial, looks him eye to eye again and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. And what's Peter wondering? Now what's the response going to be? Because had it been us instead of Christ, would not the next question would be, well, why didn't you show it at the most important time in my trial, Peter? When I needed you the most, you weren't there. You failed. But Jesus Christ looks at him and says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Get back into doing what you need to do, Peter. Be restored to be what you need to be. And then in the midst of all that, he gives Peter an announcement that Peter's going to suffer. Peter wasn't ready for that. Peter basically, he got the message. God said, you're going to give your life for me one day, Peter, just like you said you would. And Peter, in the midst of his suffering, started looking around like we often do. Why me? How do we know he's got a why me attitude? He looks at John, and what does he say? What about him? If I've got to do this, what about him? And what did Jesus Christ say? In the modern vernacular, Peter, that's none of your business. You follow me. And that's the lesson that we're going to find from Job. As Job wonders why, God's going to come to him at the end of the day, and he's basically going to say, I am the God who's in control. Job, continue to follow me, unquestioningly, because you know who I am. And when we're in the midst of struggling and suffering, we need to have the same idea in our minds. God has it in control. He knows where we are, and he's looking at you and me, and he's saying, in the midst of this, I have a plan. You follow 
me. Now, we have some wonderful tools that Job didn't have at that time. Remember Job talking to himself for all that time? Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. I don't know that Job had this at this time. I think he was prior to this time. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. When we're struggling and asking why, we need to meditate and talk to ourselves with what? The truth, with Scripture. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, whatever's true, honorable, just, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, if it's commendable, if it's excellent, think on these things. Next time you're suffering, go back to Philippians 4, 8 and say, what am I telling myself? Is it true? Is it commendable? Is it right? Or am I having a pity party in my mind? Often, it, it, we, we talk ourselves into depression and despair. Because we don't go back to this book. And the idea of Ephesians, and we really are going to finish with this. Ephesians 5, 18-20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything in God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we're talking to ourselves, you know what really helps? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we finish every service. Every service we finish with about three songs. Why do we do that? Well, you got to do something to end the service. You can't just say amen after the message. No, it's there for a purpose. My goal, my hope, my prayer is that you leave those doors after we sing. You'll find that we try the best we can to tie those songs into the message of Scripture. Because I want you to leave with a song in your heart that will remind you of the truth that we've studied. So that when life gets difficult this week, you can talk to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody from your heart, that it won't hit the head, but it'll hit the heart. And those songs are there to help us remember in those times of suffering, in those times of despair, that God's still there. God's in control. God cares. And I hope it's doing that for you. What are you talking to yourself about? I know some of you are struggling. Some of you are suffering. Some of you will be if you're not today. Can I encourage you one last time? When you begin talking to yourself, do it in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do it with meditating on the word of God and let God bring the right answers. He's probably not going to tell you why, but he can remind you of who and he can show you how. And that's what our lives ought to be all about as we glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, though this is a difficult chapter, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for the honesty and to the look of the life of Job. This was a man who was like none other. And yet the circumstances and the trials that came into his life, trials that were greater than many of us may ever face in the multitude and the quickness in which it came, yet it added a heavy burden to his heart. So God, I pray that you'll help us, as Job will learn along the road of this book, to ask the right questions. Not necessarily the why, but the who, who's in control, and the how. How do we react in order to honor and glorify Christ in the midst of difficulty? And then may you be honored and glorified with our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.